what are the types of impact transactions we want to be driving. So it really requires an upskilling within banking institutions to be able to work with partners and say, well, let's understand how the world is changing. I mean, coming back to climate, let's start to understand forward-looking how industries are going to be changing to adjust to this low carbon transition and physical climate impacts that are going to come. And let's start to get more our capacity to be more predictive how we can start to pick the winners within the different industries that we work with today, within the communities that we work with, so that you really are value added to these transitions rather than essentially being seen as, as a barrier to the changes that they need to make. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Eric Usher heads the UN Environment Program Finance Initiative, or UNEP-FI, a global partnership bringing together the UN with a global group of banks, including BMO Financial Group, insurers and asset managers working to develop the sustainable finance and responsible investment agendas. Eric oversees governance, strategy, and day-to-day management of UNEP-FI's world program and global network development. Since joining in 2015, Eric has focused on accelerating the deep integration of sustainability risks into financial practice, including addressing climate change, natural capital loss, and human rights abuses, as well as building out the frameworks for positive impact finance needed to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals. UNEP-FI has established some of the most important sustainability-oriented frameworks within the finance industry, including the Principles for Responsible Investment, which were created in 2006, the Principles for Sustainable Insurance, which were released in 2012, and the Principles for Responsible Banking, which were released in 2019. Today, I will be speaking with Eric about the Principles for Responsible Banking in particular. BMO joined the Principles for Responsible Banking earlier this year. So thanks for speaking with me today, Eric. My pleasure, Michael, and uh, great to be with you. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a, a prominent Canadian in a prominent role with the UN. How did you come to lead UNEP-FI? A uh, long and winding history, as we all have, I think, if, if we get deep enough into our career. So I, I actually have been uh, abroad for uh, actually 25 years. Um, but I started in, in, in Canada in the technology R&D sector, specifically actually looking at uh, renewables, renewable energies. Then I actually um, I joined a solar rural electrification uh, startup company in Morocco, which took me abroad, and then eventually uh, I did my my MBA and then moved into the UN to work on uh, financing for the for the low carbon sectors, and then eventually uh, moved over to uh, leading UNEP FI the the finance initiative within the UN Environment Program uh, in 2015. So what can you tell us about UNEP FI for our listeners who may not be familiar? What is the mandate of the organization? Okay, so it was set up actually back in 1992 at the time of the Rio Earth Summit, um, which was actually 
was headed by Maurice Strong, a notable Canadian. And that was the first time that governments were meeting uh, really to sort of flesh out the notion of sustainable development. And this was something that caught the attention within the finance industry. And there were a number of banks and insurers who attended and they, they said, we need some sort of platform to be able to understand essentially what governments are discussing here around this new idea. And we also need some way to actually feed into these these processes going forward. So the UNIP Finance Initiative was established and it's grown over time. I, I think uh, a first important inflection was in the 2006-07 period where we had commissioned uh, what was come to be called the Freshfields Report, which was named after the legal firm in the UK who penned it, which for the first time established the notion that it was permissible for investors to take environmental and social governance issues into account in their investment decision-making. And that realization was what led to the drafting, which we undertook with a group of investors um, and the Global Compact, the drafting of the principles for responsible investment. And those were launched uh, with uh, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan at the time at the New York Stock Exchange with just, um, it was uh, 20 some um, investors. Uh, it's grown today. It's uh, uh, We're closing in on 4,000 investors or signatories to the PRI, and it's become the the, the main framework for, for sustainability or, or responsible investment norms within the investment industry. Flash forward, well, six years, and we did the same with the insurance industry and uh, drafted the principles for sustainable insurance. And then I think the really big um, scaling up was in 2015, where governments came together, 195 governments, to to release the the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and at the same time um, in Paris, the the Paris Climate Agreement, and this really marked a, a shift as a place where governments were coming together to negotiate agreements between governments, but in a way that eventually would impact on how the financial sector and everyone in the private sector would do business around these issues of addressing climate change, but also addressing and dealing with other sustainable development goals like um, gender equality, like poverty alleviation, like access to clean water and uh, energy and more. So that's kind of a, a, a long overview. We're coming up on our 30-year anniversary, but really the, the necessity and the, the imperative for the financial sector to, to understand these issues, how it affects their, their business, and also what role they can play in, in driving forward these societal needs, I think is, is more relevant than ever before. And so you've alluded to all the frameworks that UNEPFI has created, and, and the most recent and, and perhaps most prominent is the Principles for Responsible Banking, and that's going to be the subject of our discussion today. Can you tell us what the Principles for Responsible Banking are and, and what was the impetus behind developing them? Sure. Let me go back once again in time a little bit. You know, the, the banks were actually, I would say, the first within the financial sector to start to realize that environmental risks and later social risks definitely were something that they needed to start managing. 
And so uh, going back, really in the 1990s, where things really started to get going, and you had the the Superfund laws in in the U.S. And for the first time, well, financial actors and particularly banks could be held responsible for environmental damages that their clients um, or their investee companies um, uh, created. The working with the World Bank Group, a group of banks established the Equator principles, which started to to establish from a transactional basis what were the types of environmental social issues needed to be um, included in in due diligence and sort of understanding um, as you decided on your clients how you're going to finance them so that you know in a sense if you think of um, financing for a mining activity that you didn't end up financing a mine that was going to leach cyanide into the water table very much a transactional focus now um, although the banks were the first out i would say and then it started to spread across the finance industry it was the investors and with the launch of the principles of responsible investment who then stepped up and moved from a transactional focus for to a more of a strategic perspective. And I, I like to describe it a little bit as the elevator pitch. If, if you get to ride the elevator with the, the, the CEO or leader of a of major investment company and you ask them what their approach to sustainability considerations are or ESG, typically they'll say, well, we're signatories to the PRI. If you do the same with um, a bank or leadership, they might know that they're a signatory to the equator principles and that they have an environmental risk management um, department. But the real um, distinguishing point is when you ask them, what are the principles? The PRI signatory knows them because they have six principles really that are written from for a strategic perspective. So something that investor leaders can understand. Whereas for instance, the equator principles are 18 pages, and there are much more technical details that help an institution understand to identify transaction-oriented risks. They are not strategic in nature. Now, when the PRI was launched, and since then, so that's 15 years ago, the, the question was, well, what about the banks? Should they not have a similar strategic framework? And the typical response was, well, we do have a lot of frameworks for, for helping us you know, not identify the, the sorts of transactions we need to be careful of. In 2015, which, as I mentioned, it was a real inflection point, the pressure on the banks to do something really grew. And up until that point, you had um, civil society, so NGOs, um, who were really pushing them on these issues. But I think to some extent, it was a little bit of, of, a, of a one stakeholder pressure point. Post-2015, you started to get regulators, investors, clients, staff, a much wider set of stakeholders who started to essentially say to the banks, you know, we need to understand what you're doing related to addressing climate change and related to um, all of these sustainability issues that we believe um, a bank has the responsibility to be on top of. That's what led a group of banks and and, uh, we brought together uh, within our global membership uh, 30 banks who started to then draft a set of principles for responsible banking. And essentially these principles lay out what it is to be a responsible bank in the 21st century. Part of the driver also was that, you know, 10 years after the financial crisis, banks, I think, were still working to rebuild their sense of purpose. 
um, you know, what is the role of the banks? And, and particularly as you start to get upstarts like fintechs coming in and, and competing in, in different areas of the business, challenging banks to, to redefine themselves. And so the, 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 the PRB really has been positioned and I think helps deliver as a solution to help reinstate trust in the industry and establish the banking industry as a part of the, of the sustainable development solution that we're increasingly starting to talk about today. You mentioned, Eric, that there was 30 banks involved in drafting the principles. Um, can you tell us any more about the processes for development? Was there any consultation with civil society or, or other stakeholders? Yeah, absolutely. So it was, as I mentioned, this was a um, process where the banks were, were doing the drafting facilitated by the UN, but it was those who were going to be implementing were the ones who were who were doing the drafting. It was 30 banks initially. It was a global group. And then um, there was a consultation process. Civil society was consulted and provided very valuable input, which I think helped strengthen the framework. And then ultimately, um, after consultation and some revisions, uh, 30 banks launched the principles with UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in September 2019 at UN General Assembly. And you mentioned that the PRB, I like the way you put it, you say it's it's like the elevator pitch for banking and sustainability in the same way that the principles for responsible investment might be for an asset manager. Can you unpack for uh, our audience what the principles of the principles for responsible banking are? And in particular, I'm sure you'll get to it, is this idea of impact and how that idea is encapsulated in the principles. Absolutely. And I think it's it's very interesting and important that the PRB's principal structure is radically different from the PRI or the PSI for, for insurance, because those two frameworks have been very formidable but in establishing um, a risk framework for addressing environmental social governance issues. The PRB, um, largely because it was drafted post-2015, to some extent assumes that signatories actually have a large part, not entirely, but a large part of the risk dimension in place already, and then it goes the next step. And and this is embodied in the principles. Um, So there, there are six principles, and I'll just quickly review what they are, what's different really to to the current or their previous approaches. Principle one, the most important alignment. So this is really about the purpose question. And the principle basically uh, roughly says, we will work to align our businesses with the needs of the individual as defined by the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the Paris Climate Agreement, and other relevant uh, frameworks. So it really is the question of what is the purpose of what we do and does it align with the needs of individuals? Now, how you do that is defined in the second principle, which is the focus of impact, which is the notion of understanding the impact of one's financing, both positive and negative, and understanding that unless you have tools to measure the impact you have, you actually can't um, adjust that impact over time. So the principle two then goes further and says, we will install the systems to monitor the impact of our financing, positive and negative, um, and then we will prioritize those impacts and start to set targets, business targets, to make uh, measurable improvements in the most significant impact areas that we have. Now, this is a global framework, which means the impacts and the targets that are set will be different in one market to another. We can learn globally in terms of best practice, but the solutions we apply, the impacts we target are always gonna be appropriate to our 
own commercial context and our market needs, customer needs. The third um, principle then is, well, it's, it's very much about customers and clients because the reality is our paper consumption, our energy consumption, although you know historically we've started to track those measures and they're relevant, but they are not, it, it is not the most Im important impact of what we provide or, or we create. It's really what our customers and, and clients do that is the impact of our financing. And therefore the third principle says, we will work with our clients and our customers to, to make these uh, improvements in impact. That becomes part of our role. The fourth uh, principle is around the notion of working with stakeholders, so civil society, we already mentioned regulators and others to try to also contribute to improving the enabling environment for these important steps to be taken. The fifth is around putting in place the appropriate governance systems. And as I mentioned, the elevator pitch is it's not only about what happens at the governance, at the transaction phase, uh, but it's also backing all the way up. It's essentially, it comes down to leadership, board governance, oversight, um, management uh, systems, compensation, et cetera, to have all the systems in place to help us deliver. And then the final principle is on uh, reporting and accountability and um, to be credible, to be um, a framework that all can trust and believe and learn from. We, we do need sufficient information back to the markets, back to stakeholders to show that we are actually are delivering on the, the, um, the commitments we have made. And I can speak a little bit more in detail about that later. What can you tell us about practically speaking what signatories are expected to do? Yeah, so there are four steps and I've spoken through this uh, through the principles description, the first step a signatory needs to do is instill the systems to monitor impact across lines of business. And you'd appreciate this is a big ask. This is challenging. Typically, signatories have, have this in some parts of their business, but not in others. And the methodologies are often not fully developed. And so part of the role of bringing banks together is to try to come up with the common methodologies. I mean, the, the most simple example would be the, um, the mortgage portfolio. You're financing um, uh, households to, to, um, to build or to purchase homes. The potential to actually start saying, well, how do we shift towards green uh, home loans? requires that you're able to actually identify what is a green home loan, what are the purposes of the financing to actually put in energy efficiency improvements or install solar on the roof, etc. For a bank to actually start to be able to set criteria and to track individual home loan energy efficiency improvements, and then to be able to aggregate them and to run them through the bank's business and potentially to securitize those home loans together and to then sell this financing into the capital markets as green bonds, the rationale for doing that gets clearer and clearer because we, we have a growing universe of green bond purchasers who are looking for such assets. But the, the scaling up for the bank to be able to, to track and monitor that type of impact is something that most banks are still at early days. So the first step, put in place a system to monitor impact. The second step, is to start to prioritize impact. And, and, and the, the specific wording says, focus where it matters most. So I, I raised the example earlier of your own paper use and energy use. Those are important, but those are not the biggest impacts you will have. Most of the impacts are ex essentially what your clients do with your financing. So it's this process of trying to pri prioritize 
these impacts. Then you need to set targets for the most significant impact areas. At any one time, signatories have to be publishing and working to achieve material progress on at least two impact areas. Uh, in places in Europe, in North America, climate is certainly um, one of the most important areas typically that comes up. In other regions, it could, uh, it could vary depending on the local context. And then finally, you have to report on progress, the accountability measures, what I mentioned. And those accountabilities, it doesn't um, require necessarily PRB reports. Under the PRI, you, you do PRI reporting. Under the PRB, banks are already doing a lot of reporting, so it doesn't require an additional report. What it requires is specific types of information that needs to be reported through one of, of the, the, the normal reporting processes. So it could be a bank through uh, their GRI submissions, the CDP submissions, could be through their sustainability report, or it could be through an integrated financial sustainability report. But there are set requirements of what they need to report on. And finally, one of the most challenging aspects of the PRB is the first major financial framework where assurance is required. So essentially, assurance providers, um, the, the big five accountancies uh, typically need to come in and essentially provide an assurance statement that you are reporting, you are transparently providing to the markets uh, information that's needed to show um, how these principles are being implemented within the bank. That's a, a great overview. And maybe if we can just drill down on a couple of those points. So when it comes to impact, you've mentioned climate change. That's obviously a huge one for the financial sector, human rights. Uh, what other types of impacts would banks have? Is it all in relation to financing or is it relevant in terms of diversity and inclusion with employees and, and that sort of thing? H how do you define impact? Obviously, there are, there are many issues to look at. And you know, the PRB framework is not instructing banks to report on certain topics or to set certain topics. It, it, it roughly is a disclosure framework which allows banks or helps them to deal with increasing issues that they know they need to pay attention to, like climate change, but many other areas like, like gender equality, like um, access to finance, um, like uh, biodiversity and uh, nature preservation. And essentially, as I mentioned earlier, it's up to a bank to decide which are the most important areas, depending on the types of products and services and markets they operate in. And what the PRB offers then is if you're going to focus on climate, groups of banks will work together to come up with common guidance on how exactly you should be setting targets and reporting that over time. So it's not an individual bank deciding how they will go about it. It's an industry-led process to figure out well, what's, what is the best way to essentially describe and to navigate essentially how we're going to look forward. And really, it's about providing forward guidance to the markets, to your customers and clients on a position. So for instance, on climate, on the need to start moving towards this low carbon transition doesn't mean that a bank on day one is divesting from all fossil fuel intensive activity, but it does expect that they start to provide the guidance to the markets to say, we believe over time, we see the necessity to start shifting and to working with our clients to shift their business models and we're there to work with them and help finance that transition towards where we believe society, markets, and customers need to go on that issue. So with regard to this target setting guidance, um, we bring together the groups of banks who are focused on specific issues and then collectively develop the guidance. So recently we've just put out guidance on, on gender 
essentially. So what does it mean to start to have policies around uh, gender equality within our organization and, and with our, our, our customers? Uh, during the course of the year, we will be putting out uh, collective guidance on nature, biodiversity issues, on climate, alignment with Paris and the net zero, on issues like uh, circularity, so cleaner production and, and uh, pollution abatement, waste management. So there are uh, an increasing number of issues. Banks are dealing with this on a, on a regular basis, often in individual ways. And essentially, this is a means to get together and to say, okay, let's come up, let, let's prepare guidance, let's work with regulators and civil society to figure out how we set such guidance, but really driven by helping the banks as economic actors who really increasingly need to shift from being change takers to helping being change makers, to work with clients to actually say, okay, how can we navigate these new issues that are coming up that we realize there's a need to change and let's work together to get there. One thing I really like about the principles is this focus on working in partnership with clients and customers. And this is a dynamic that I think a lot of people maybe who aren't in the banking sector don't don't always appreciate that there's a big difference between the way that asset managers engage with companies and the way that banks would engage with their clients, who the client companies. In the banking sector, you have very long-standing, sometimes decades-old relationships with with clients, and and there really is a close partnership with them to help them achieve their strategic goals. And, and the opportunity here is to help advance their economic and financial goals while also advancing sustainability, which is increasingly really tied to business strategy. And so there's that partnership idea. Can you just speak a little bit to to that dynamic and and what makes the principles for responsible banking responsive to that dynamic? Yeah, no, I think this is a critical issue. And if we look at the role of investors versus banks versus insurers and, and others, uh, with the client, it, it is slightly different um, in terms of how we navigate forward on these issues. And for instance, if we think about climate issues, uh, there's a lot of pressure towards divestment. And there's also a, a, a realization that, well, in, in liquid um, capital markets, first of all, investors, the biggest impact they can have is engaging with their clients. But the reality is they're, they're, they're typically quite at a distance. And, and sometimes, engagements are not that easy when you're in, in really liquid markets uh, because there's always a, um, a buyer for, for the seller. So the threat of divestment can't, might not have that much impact. Banks, you know, the, the value of banks are often very much in the client relationships. And therefore, it's very much about not so much exiting a sector, but how do you work with that sector? How do you work with that community to essentially, if we're going to have to navigate forward, to actually make those changes? And, and particularly as we start to think about sectors that start to get into some difficulty with changes that are coming, often um, in terms of like the pu public equities market, you don't actually worry that much about your investors when your stock price is going down, you worry about your bondholders and your bankers. Those are the ones who really have influence on industries as they get into trouble. And therefore, the, the critical role of banks to be able to work with uh, companies, with big industries to say, well, we see you know, things are happening. Things are changing in the in the auto industry, in in the in the cement industry, in the steel industry, in in power and energy and and in agriculture. We need to start working together to figure out what the solutions are to get on to a pathway of of prosperity, of of economic development, of of good jobs in a way that doesn't leave um, communities behind, 
but actually uh, moves us in a direction that creates economic, but also um, social and sustainable prosperity. One of the things I really also like about the PRB's focus on impact is that you have the ability to find intersection between different types of impacts, and you've touched on this. So the idea, for example, of of climate and climate-related transition being critical, but also understanding social impacts, community impacts, and you can incorporate ideas like just transition. Are, are you able to to talk a little bit about that, of the the intersection between different types of impacts and and, and how the principles facilitate a more holistic view of those impacts? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is a, you know, I think this will always be a work in progress because the notion of impact, um, I mean, I think one of the challenges for banks, impact is something that you want to try to break it down to be able to identify which is the good customer, the good financing versus which is the bad one. It doesn't lend itself directly to sort of the checkbox approach. And it requires more of a capacity development for a bank to really have the ability to understand this more holistic view. And essentially that um, the notion of positive impact is one where you holistically understand everything that goes on around the economic activity and that you help to essentially make improvements in that. So it's not only the um, one environmental impact that it might have, but it also is the job impact. It also is the other societal um, indicators or social indicator impact that you need to track. So we are, once again, with, with the signatories coming up with these tools to try to go in and try to understand and build the capacity to say, okay, how do we understand how society is going to shift on this issue or needs to shift? Climate, to some extent, at least climate mitigation, is one of the easier areas because people conceptually at least understand the notion of a price on carbon or an implied price on carbon. And so it starts to give you a sort of rule of thumb about how we can help decarbonize an economic activity over time. But if you climb out of the climate challenge and into the other 16 sustainable development goals, the ones I mentioned earlier, it can get really, really challenging. And to some extent is, oh, we understand it. Um, you know, when we see it, we understand that it's good, but it's hard to actually know before beforehand, you know, what are the types of impact transactions we want to be driving? So it really requires an upskilling within banking institutions to be able to work with partners and say, well, let's understand how the world is changing. Let's, I mean, coming back to climate, let's start to understand forward-looking how industries are going to be changing to adjust to this low carbon trans- transition and to and physical climate impacts that are going to come, even with the, the lock-in that we have today. And let's start to get more our capacity to be more predictive of how we can start to pick the winners within the different industries that we work with today, within the communities that we work with, so that you really are value added to these transitions rather than essentially being seen as, as a barrier to the changes that they need to make. And you mentioned the tools that have been developed by UNEPFI, and this has been something that we've used quite a lot, actually, in the context of our impact fund. We were able to leverage some of the tools that that you've built to help us structure our, our impact assessment. Can you speak a bit about how UNEPFI is supporting uh, bank members and you know creating these kinds of tools, toolkits to uh, implement the principles? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are various aspects to it. As you, you've mentioned, the way the signatories operationalize is there are um, working groups that are set up, which are groups of banks who are addressing common issues. And um, there are actually two groups working specifically around impact analysis, one who um, are developing 
portfolio uh, impact analysis tools and also corporate impact analysis. So at the portfolio level, you have many corporates and you can try to get aggregate information on you know, how much, say, um, energy efficiency improvements you're making within your mortgage portfolio. But then when you start to work with individual corporates who, who potentially are very complicated in themselves, they have many factories around the world, you actually also need um, tools that are specific to, to individual clients. Uh, we also have a um, uh, peer exchange, so essentially banks working together to collectively try to navigate through these issues as they develop new types of guidance. We are uh, releasing shortly uh, new guidance on, on impact analysis, um, a number of new uh, portfolio impact analysis tools. Uh, we will be coming out with new tools, uh, one in, in terms of investment portfolios, uh, one in terms of uh, real estate, uh, both in the coming ma- uh, months real estate portfolios, and uh, and then more will be developed over time. An- another area where work is underway is in terms of uh, legal. The legal framework, I'd mentioned the Freshfields uh, analysis from 15 years ago, we really have seen a lot of clarification in terms of fiduciary duties from an investor perspective of what uh, an investor can and can't look at from a risk financially material risk perspective, the latest work we're working on jointly with the PRI is um, how can you integrate impact into your investment strategy? Now that's from an investor perspective, but it does have ripple on effects to banks to essentially say, how far can you go in targeting an impact-based business and not running afoul essentially of your duties to proper uh, responsible financial management? So that's an important area of work. And then the final area is all of this is definitely driven by data. The financial system, you know, the lifeblood, the financial system is data. And we are seeing important developments happening um, today in trying to bring more convergence in terms of the data standards and the data reporting. Right now, we have the GRI, we have CDP, we have SASB and more. And there's a call to essentially try to get more of of a classification and a convergence in these standards. And recently, we have the IFRS, which, you know, sits over the... um, IASPE, the, the accounting standards for most countries globally, and, and they announced the, the, their intention to potentially set up accounting guidance for uh, non-financial uh, measures, including certainly impact-related measures. And we're also working um, with the banking sector to be feeding into those processes to try to essentially put in place the tools so you can measure, so you can understand the impact of your of what you measure, and you can essentially start to set business targets to to make improvements in those impacts over time. I'm involved in that the legal working group to update the Freshfields report. It's very fascinating work. So look forward to seeing the the output of that and those other working groups you mentioned. In terms of the the principles, uh, going back to them, the accountability framework. How um, will members of the PRB, will there be a review process to, to determine their uh, adherence to, to the commitments? How do you think about that topic? Yeah, so the signatories do have to provide information, report back through through the reporting mechanism that they, they choose on an annual basis, initially 18 months after signing, and then thereafter on an annual basis. That information has to be assured, as I've mentioned, and there is a, a matrix, a framework of what needs to be assured to provide 
confidence in terms of the accountability towards implementation. There is a delisting mechanism for, for those who are not meeting the, the, the base requirements to, to um, further undergird the integrity of the principles. And finally, there is this civil society advisory body which provides the input from civil society towards the issues that they're seeing that should be addressed at the strategic level. This does not change or negate the need for banks to be working with civil society in the business that they do today, but we hope it will help provide a wider accountability in terms of what the banking sector can do. And we will actually, we will shortly announce the inaugural members of the civil society advisory body. And I think you'll see it's very interesting, a very cross-section of stakeholders who will be providing inputs that help, I think, really um, provide inputs towards banks to help them navigate their way forward in this really challenging area. And just as a final topic, Eric, uh, what can you say in terms of the level of adoption of the principles so far, and and what would your message be to financial institutions who have not yet adopted it? Thanks. Well, I, I should call out and congratulate um, Bank of Montreal, because you are the first of the Bay Street banks to become signatories. Today, we have uh, 215 signatories globally. Now, of course, there are many more banks than that around the world, but those 215 represent a little over 40% of global banking assets. So it's mostly the bigger banks in their markets. Uh, we have um, nine out of 10 of the largest banks in Europe are signatories, seven out of 10 in Latin America, four out of 10 in Asia, three out of 10 in Africa, and uh, we're at only two out of 10 in North America. So we have um, a lot to do, uh, particularly uh, in the North American region. But, you know, less than two years into the launch, we, we're, we're quite happy with the, the, the scale of adoption. In terms of what they've been doing, uh, because it's much more than just signing, as, as a collective, well, they've established a new governance body, which is the Principles Responsible Banking Board, who oversees the implementation. They have established an individual and collective progress review process. So as I said, uh, individual reporting and feedback review. Um, there's, they've established the civil society advisory body that I mentioned and the delisting mechanism. But I think the real progress is what they've been doing internally. And I think the individual banks have been working to create the strategy, the policies, the training, the accountability they need to embed the principles across all their lines of business. They've started to work with clients and customers to provide sustainability-focused advice and the new types of financial products and services like sustainability-linked loans that are needed by their customers to help navigate these, these issues and these transitions. Uh, the signatories have started to scale up their, their efforts to drive the green transformation. And I think they've been things, areas like reviewing their emissions portfolio. Um, some are started to set Paris aligned portfolio targets and develop um, new types of, of green financial products, green loans, et cetera, to help uh, deliver on them. And I think in general, making a big step up and probably one of the most important indicators in, in these times today is their response to the pandemic. And I think, you know, through maintaining business liquidity lines, um, payment breaks, uh, establishing new credit lines, working, including with governments, you know, they've really been showing the role of banks and being playing a responsible role in um, navigating the crisis and starting to build back. All of those, I think, are, are what's happening today. So this year, we will actually be preparing the first biennial collective progress report of the collective signatories, which starts to measure and give an idea of, is this group 
um, which is a large part of the, of the banking industry, actually starting to make progress on certain measures related to the challenges that they've identified. And to your question earlier, they will be looking at the framework uh, and to ensure that it maintains um, an ongoing relevance and efficiency, they will be uh, undertaking a biennial review of the principles and the framework documents. And this is meant to be a live set of guidance documents so that over time they will update them as the world changes, as the world adapts. Uh, so it's a moving target. And uh, also to support implementation, you know, there are many working groups, as I mentioned, looking at areas like impact analysis, target setting, re reporting and assurance, uh, how engage with clients, uh, progress monitoring uh, and the like. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Eric, and um, look forward to continuing to work with you uh, on the principles for responsible banking and with our work with UNEP FI. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, looking forward to continuing on this journey. Uh, I don't think it's any easy for anyone, but this is a stretch ambition. And we really believe it's very promising that the banking sector are the ones who are leading this change and, and working hand in hand with governments, uh, with other stakeholders and with their clients to, to help us navigate a solid way forward. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.